From the Annals of Thoracic Surgery and the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Surgical Hot Topics Series. I'm Tom Varghese, a thoracic surgeon and deputy editor of Digital Media and Digital Scholarship for the Annals. This is a podcast all about the why behind the articles and the issues in cardiothoracic surgery and healthcare, and what are the planned next steps from authors and thought leaders in the field. We're glad that you are here. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Your feedback is appreciated. Please remember, the opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the individuals and not necessarily of SDS. The death rate from cancer has declined steadily over the past 25 years, mostly due to steady reductions in smoking and advances in early detection and treatment. However, worldwide, there were 9.6 million deaths from cancer in 2018, with lung cancer deaths still number one amongst all cancer types. Cancer care does not occur in a vacuum. Clinical practice guidelines in oncology are a set of step-by-step, evidence-based, consensus-driven recommendations to ensure that patients receive preventive, diagnostic, treatment, and support services that are most likely to lead to optimal outcomes. A tumor board review is conducted when teams of expert physicians meet to review and discuss complex patients with a diagnosis of cancer. The most common methodology employed in tumor board reviews include review of imaging, review of pathology results, and then discussion amongst surgical, medical, and radiation oncologists about what best treatment options should be for that patient. Now imagine this scenario, not only reviewing of the imaging and pathology, but also review of the actual active metabolic pathway that the tumor is employing in vivo. Think of the treatment implications, the true patient-centered approach at the biological level. In today's Beyond the Abstract podcast, we interview a trailblazer in our field, Dr. Kemp Kernstein, Chair of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We explore the why behind his transformative article and the next steps in the path ahead. Join us as we go Beyond the Abstract. On today's podcast, we're joined by Dr. Kemp Kernstein, who's a professor in the Department of Thoracic Surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center and holds the Robert Tucker Hayes Foundation Distinguished Chair in Cardiothoracic Surgery. Uh, We'll be talking about his uh, recently published article, Does Tumor FDG Pet Avidity Represent Enhanced Glycolytic Metabolism in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, which was initially presented at the 65th Annual Meeting of the Southern Thoracic Surgical Association. Dr. Kernstein, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Great being here. Appreciate it. Uh, let's dive in. Um, the The study that you and your team conducted is honestly uh, quite brilliant. Um, we know that in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, fluorodeoxyglucose or FDG uh, PET uh, assists in the diagnosis, staging, and evaluation of treatment response. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what prompted you to explore what happens to the fate of glucose in FDG-avid lung tumors in vivo? Sure. When I um, first finished my training, I was lucky enough to be at a institution that had one of the few PET scanners in the country at that time. And there was a cadre of PET superstars. And so we had our own cyclotron and I really knew very little about PET. 
and uh, found it. Uh, oh, they just pulled me into their research, and I, I learned a great deal about it. And this was at the University of Minnesota when you were completing your PhD, or was this later um, at the Brigham and uh, Women's Hospital? This was actually at uh, the University of Iowa. Oh, okay. So this, Before this, that. This is, this is, <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is uh, in around 95, 96. And we were finding patients that were coming in for PET, and you probably know PET was developed to study the brain. Uh, during a, a variety of different diseases uh, or uh, uh, evaluation of brain function during uh, certain activities, is better said, uh, and how that uh, parlayed into the patient's symptoms. Um, and, you know, PET was invented uh, in 1972, and a lot of research has been going on with it, but our group, and then there was a group at the University of uh, West Virginia uh, that also had a PET scanner. Then there was also a group at Stanford that uh, we were all coming to the same conclusions that there was a role in lung cancer. A lot of these paranoid schizophrenics, for example, or schizophrenics that were being studied or smokers. So we discovered that they had these tumors that lit up on, on uh, uh, PET. Um, as things evolved, we learned that, uh, you know, it was pretty helpful in assessing for metastatic disease, which led to the ACASOG trial. But as we were getting into this, we were discovering some of the failings of FDG-PET. So that led some of us to go into a different direction as we were exploring PET, evaluating the use of MRI and the different technologies that go along with MRI. We think of MRI as studying anatomy. But there's a lot of other information. In fact, I always tell patients uh, that we're really only looking at three to five percent of the data that comes out of an MRI machine. And so what we're doing here at the Advanced Imaging Research Center um, is, and this is a, a unique uh, center looking at different imaging modalities. Uh, we're using a three Tesla machine and uh, some added bells and whistles to help us capture what we think is metabolic information. So that's where we started. So when I, I came here in 2011, uh, I had a period of time where I was just starting up my practice. You know, and we talked about clinical scientists uh, or surgeon scientists. And I was starting up my practice, and this had been something that had been on my mind for a while. So I wrote up a protocol. I needed to find a group of people that were doing metabolomic research, and I found that in a laboratory here in the Department of Pediatrics, and it's led by Ralph Debradinus. Uh, so to clarify, and, the Department of Pediatrics, not, not surgery, pediatrics. That, wow. That, that's right. That's right. And, and, and frankly, you know, it's in a totally different hospital. You know, the way the University of Texas Southwestern is set up, it's, you know, it's a distance away. So we, um, he had done a fair amount of work in looking at glioblastomas and was getting some pretty good baseline information, but it wasn't that robust. So I uh, contacted him, and so we set up some meetings, and we looked at some mouse. Uh, we got some uh, mouse xenographs, and we started looking at mouse data, and it looked compelling, So which led to us this uh, developing this trial in patients. And, uh, and, and that's 
that's where, you know, there have been so many people. I, I mean, I'm representing probably 50 people that are involved in this. And you know, I just wanted to point out that um, uh, Brandon Fulbert, who's the postdoctoral student, uh, he has been instrumental in this, and he and I equally contributed in this, in this trial. So these patients were coming in with the focus of getting an MRI when they had their lung cancer diagnosed. And the MRI's purpose was to help us understand what's going on in vivo as opposed to the Warburg effect. And I can describe that to you all later if you have an interest. But is what we're seeing in the Petri dish the same that's going on in patients? And this, it, there's a, a technique that Ralph and some others have designed. I think we talked about this before that um, you know, we were the first to do this, and that's not quite true. I think the first to do it in the manner that we're doing it, but there's a group at the University of Kentucky that have had a similar experience but have not written on this particular topic and comparing FDG PET. Wow, so that, 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 that's incredible. I'm kind of all over the place, but I'm sort of wanting to take you down the, the path of how we got to this point uh, yeah. in discovering uh, the, the metabolic activity that's going on with lung cancer. One of the things that always gets me is they describe the FDG PET as a metabolic scan. And so uh, having done a fair amount of research in, it in the 90s, to get from where we were in the 90s to where we are today and to call it a metabolic scan, I knew that that was incorrect. It's, it wasn't a metabolic scan. We didn't think it was then. Uh, the <laughs> Back in the 90s, of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't. And I, I don't know if you remember, it, they were just, just pets. They were not combined with CT. The combination didn't occur until around 2003, 2002, the first one showing up on, on the clinical front in around 2004. So we, we used to have to co-register these scans, and it was a challenge to read them because there was just a lot of dark, fuzzy, and light, fuzzy activity, and so you had to kind of figure out which was which, and it, it would always go to the PET scanner, and then they, they did their magic to figure out what this was all about. So it was really a, it was really a challenge. No, uh, that's a, another another reason to uh, to investigate this uh, this MRI technology. No, that's that's an amazing background. Uh, uh, and for our listeners, uh, if you go to Dr. Kernstein's website, uh, so Dr. Kernstein is an MD PhD, and the first line out of his website says, "Who trained for 24 years to become the subspecialty surgeon he is today." <laughs> Remarkable testament <laughs> to your perseverance. Thanks, thanks, thanks Tom. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I guess uh, before we go on, uh, before I forget, uh, if you wanted to take a moment and clarify the effect that you were just mentioning. Well, yes, you know, I think that when your uh, uh, nuclear medicine people are saying, or oh, this metabolic scan, or they're reading it out as a metabolic scan, I think that this paper, you can now correct them and tell them that, no, it's not a metabolic scan. It's not showing metabolic activity. And we can get into that and how we were able to discover this in vivo. And that's what's important here. This is an in vivo analysis of what lung tumors are doing and what the FDG PET may represent. 
and why that's important for us as surgeons, you know, it, it, it's going to, I think, generate a lot of other research opportunities and pathways that we're going to go down to figure out how we might treat patients better in the future. Yeah, no, I, and we definitely want to get to that. But I wanted to take a, a pause and uh, kind of extend a little bit of what you just said about being the surgeon scientist uh, and the complexities of setting up a, a trial of this magnitude, um, especially in this day. I mean, you and I saw that recent uh, article that came, was published in the annals about, uh, you know, is the surgeon scientist a dying breed? Um, your, your thoughts on setting up these type of complex trials, multidisciplinary collaborations in, in today's age? Um, I think we all have a different interpret, interpretation of it. I mean, being an active surgeon like yourself, especially with all the extra paperwork, these EMRs, we have teaching obligations, um, the role that our mentors had, um, our role is very different. And so the ability to uh, identify investigators that uh, meet uh, certain specifications that you might have and uh, the ability to keep a focus and, and not necessarily be the one who gets the grant, uh, to be uh, the one that participates in the grant and understands the complexities of what the other members of your team are doing. And I think that's something I can take away. Yes, I've done all these other components. Yes, I know how to run an NMR. I understand HPLC. I understand all those, all those different tests. But, you know, I, I really need these other people who are doing this all day to partner with me to achieve the same goal that I might have done years and years ago, somewhat in a small a smaller group. This is a much larger group that we need to pull these different expertises together. Um, and so it's knowing how to uh, scientifically collaborate. Um, but but it's a critical skill. Um, I mean, and, and we need surgeons who are actively participating in this space, uh, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the sad thing about it is, well, I don't know if it's that sad. <laughs> I, I really didn't. I, I really didn't like running gels. I didn't like doing these, you know, chromatography. I, that's not my skill set. But I understand it. Yeah. I understand the features that are important for a particular project. I understand, like you know, with the coronavirus. I understand RT-PCR. I get it. I understand the weaknesses of that test. Um, and so that it is helpful in designing projects as we go forward on either malignant or benign disease, as you and I were discussing before the podcast started. Absolutely. Um, I want to now extend back into the findings of your study. I mean, as you are uh, eloquently articulated, uh, you've now conclusively proven that even though people claim that FDG-PET is a metabolic study, in reality, it's not. I mean, it didn't really correlate with the glycolytic metabolism in vivo. Um, how, how do we now proceed forward uh, from your study I mean, in terms of uh, probably directly to you about what you and your group are planning as next steps in terms of really articulating this and trying to get broader assessment of metabolic pathways in vivo and even possibly therapeutic value? Well, um, I don't mean to be around the... Uh, I, 
I don't mean to be um, circumventing your question, but I think the first thing is to understand this uh, technique that these metabolomic experts are capable of doing in our patients in vivo. So this Warburg effect has led us down a path thinking that cancers are preferentially using glucose and that once glucose is in the cell, instead of undergoing aerobic glycolysis, which is generating a much larger amount of energy and allows it to do all the things that it needs to do, it is going through an anaerobic process and producing lactate. So that's the Warburg effect, and Warburg won a Nobel Prize on it in 1931, and that's been how we've been thinking about the cancer cell. But what we've discovered in lung cancer, in vivo, that that's not the case. That This study is not showing that. There have been two cell publications that have described the discoveries in a larger number of patients. And what we've discovered is that the lung cancer cell is undergoing aerobic glycolysis. It is producing a very efficient way of producing ATP, but it also in some lung cancers is preferentially, or at least, at least part, a significant portion of its energy is coming from lactate which is seen as an excretion product. And that this lactate, uh, the ability to use lactate actually portends a poorer prognosis. The survival is a third of those patients who have not been able, their tumors have not been able to use lactate. Wow. So this is, this is oh, it's a very important feature. So the thinking, so now discovering this, that there may be medications that prevent the cell, the, the lung cancer cells, from taking up lactate from its environment. So, uh, and, and there, I would say um, uh, melanoma, for example, we've discovered that melanoma has a similar feature to it. So I've not been involved in that, with that research. We've looked at other tumors um, and it's, it's not the same across all malignancies. But it is in lung cancer. Wow! And I mean, that's perhaps, if we could, yeah. No, if we could I, turn turn this off. It may be another way to treat them, and also it may be a way that some tumors are able to live in extremely hostile environment. And you think of being surrounded by cells that are producing a lot of lactate. The lung cancer cell that is able to convert lactate as a carbon source to get into the uh, glycolic pathway and produce a lot of ATP, that, that is a hardy cell. It's going to survive, and those patients are going to die. No, th this so, is incredible. I mean, I, I, I mean, we can envision, you know, in the future that we're not just looking at static images and uh, uh, making treatment decisions, that we're yeah. really getting down to the level of the metabolic pathway. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It is. It's amazing. It's amazing. So the flux analysis is uh, not only looking at the static number uh, or the, um, the uh, amount of, of intermediate, glycolytic intermediates that are present, 
but it's looking at it in a uh, as a flux analysis. The the a tracer is given to patients just prior to them undergoing surgery, and then we are looking at this tracer after we take the uh, the tumor out. And this is um, it's a ubiquitous 13C glucose. It's not uh, radioactive and uh, it doesn't decay. So we're able to track that and use that as a, a means to assess metabolic activity. And that's what's key here in this project. Uh, Brandon uh, Faubert, the, the postdoctoral um, uh, uh, student, he actually is the one that said, gee, it really looks interesting. The, the FDG PET SUV maximum doesn't seem to be correlating. So that's what led us down the path of taking a group of 52 patients who were all diagnosed with lung cancer to see if the SUV maximum correlated with glycolytic activity, and it did not. Yeah. There, uh- uh, it, it, it's amazing. Well, I mean, to our listeners, uh, I mean, I, I we highly recommend reading this article. I mean, I, I think that uh, as, for all the reasons that you elucidated, it, it's it really lays out uh, the thought processes and the fact that we need to really deep down further into these metabolic pathways. Um, any, any final words uh, for those listening, uh, Dr. Gernstein, in terms of these type of projects and the, uh, the opportunities ahead? Well, I think this is going to lead to a lot of opportunities as we go forward with using flux analysis and a lot of different malignancies. Um, and and it's, I, I have surgical oncology colleagues that have now moved into doing this as well uh, to look at colorectal cancer, bladder cancer, uh, uh, hypernephromas. Uh, and so it appears that all of them have a little bit of uh, difference in how those tumors are um, are, uh, are surviving in vivo. So I think this is going to lead to a lot of other tracers being developed so that we can understand better how, um, you know, more understanding about the development of biomass, how uh, tumors escape our immune system, uh, and how they survive in such a hostile environment. Um, so this is it's relatively new, and I, I think this is exciting to be a part of this. Absolutely. Well, you know, on on behalf of everybody uh, here at uh, Beyond the Abstract, uh, we really want to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to our listeners about uh, this amazing project, uh, as well as detailing uh, the path ahead. Uh, From the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Tom. Join us next time as we continue to explore and debate issues beyond the abstract, part of the Surgical Hot Topic series. You can connect with the Annals of Thoracic Surgery online at annalsthoracicsurgery.org or on Twitter at Annals Thor Search.